0: Hey, welcome to First Church Live. So glad you guys are joining us. And we have family all over the 918, all across the country, worshiping with us right now. So if you guys here in person would put your hands together, give them a warm welcome. So join us for worship here today. I'd like to begin this morning with just a quick question. It's a simple question, and it's this What scares you? There are a lot of things in life that scare us. And I came across an article not too long ago that listed some of the proper names of fears that people have. And I want to put these proper names up on the screen and see if you can recognize what this is the fear of. Here's the first one. It's a pretty easy one. It's the word arachnophobia. This is the fear of what? What? Spiders, right, everybody knows that. Anybody in the room fear spiders, scared of spiders? Okay, good number of you. How about this next one? It's a little bit more difficult. I think I'm going to say this right. I'm going to know. I'm going to give it a shot. Didascalinophobia. Anybody know what that's the fear of? The fear of what? Anybody? Nobody? School. Anybody grow up fearing going to school? Yeah, okay, got some people over here, students in the room, maybe you still fear going to school. Teachers, you fear going to school? Okay, Didascalinophobia. How about this next one? Pilobophobia. Anybody know what this is? The fear of what? The fear of being bald. Somebody knew it over there. Somebody has that fear over there, I bet. Yeah. All the men in the room are nodding their heads. Yeah, okay. The fear of being bald. Here's another one. Phobophobia. This is pretty easy, right? This is the fear of fear. You know, sometimes we just are scared of being scared, right? So the fear of fear. And there's one more I want to put up, and this is a fear that I actually struggle with myself. I'm going to confess. This is Ancrophobia, anybody know what Ancrophobia is? This is the scare of wind, now you may know this about me, you may not, but I have a serious fear of heavy winds. I don't like wind, I don't like it at all and that's right, I moved my family to Oklahoma where the wind comes sweeping down the plain, yes I know. (laughs) but. I have a bad fear of heavy, high winds. It's gotten better since we've moved to Oklahoma these past two and a half years, but still, every time Travis Meyer comes on News Channel 6, this is where my family heads, okay? We're in our storm shelter. I don't know if you can tell by this picture, but this is our underground storm shelter, which I had put in because our house didn't have one when we bought it. But I had one put in, so I have a safe place to go anytime we're in a tornado watch warning, whatever. That's where we head. You can tell Addie's having a blast (laughs) as she's down there in the middle of the night, but still, we have a safe place. to go, and you can understand why I'm afraid of wind, and why other people are as well, because winds can be very forceful at times, powerful, they can be unexpected, they can move fast, and they can come on you without you even realizing what's going on, let me illustrate it like this, this past Christmas, my son Alex got one of these, you may recognize what this is, this is a toy drone that my in-laws bought him. And it's a lot of fun to play with. We've had a blast playing with his toy drone. Uh, but we got this for Christmas, and I'm going to demonstrate how this works. Basically, I'm not very good with it, but it's fun. And so let me see if I can get it to sync up here. There we go. And it should take off. There we go. Look at that. Yeah. Now, like I said, I'm not very good with it, but I'm going to see if I can send it out to the audience. There we go. Yeah. There. Bring it back. Like I said, it's a lot of fun. You can play with this for hours. So we did. We played with this inside for Christmas. See if I can land it. Come on, land, land. Uh, Okay, we'll just land it right there. That's good enough. Okay, so. We played with this thing for hours. Let me turn it off. I'll need it for next service. But we played with this thing for hours, and then we decided we'll take it outside. And we didn't read the instruction manual that said, don't take it outside, because these things are light and they're cheap. And so we had it outside, and it was going higher and higher and higher in the sky. And then this big gust of wind came along, and guess what? It was gone. And we chased after it. We even got in one of our cars and took off driving after it. We could see it in the distance, but it just kept getting further and further away, and pretty soon it was out of sight, and we lost it. And on Christmas Day, my in-laws had to get on Amazon and buy Alex another drone because his original one was gone. But that's how wind works, right? Wind is not only powerful, but it can move swiftly and unexpectedly. And it's interesting to me, it's fascinating to me, that throughout the Bible, God uses the imagery of wind to describe his spirit To describe how his spirit works on the earth and how his spirit works in our lives. In fact, there are two words used in scripture that we normally translate spirit. It's the Hebrew word ruach and the Greek word pneuma, so Old Testament, New Testament. And both of these words, which means spirit, can also be translated wind or breath of air. All throughout scripture, The Bible uses this imagery of wind, this metaphor of wind, to describe how God's Spirit works on the earth and how God's Spirit works in our lives. In fact, in John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to a man named Nicodemus, a teacher of the law. And he's talking about how God's spirit is like the wind. And look at what he says. He says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Over and over again, the Bible refers or uses the illustration, the image of wind to refer to how God's spirit works in this world. And we get why. Because wind is one of the few things in life that we understand as both tangible and non-physical at the same time. You can't really hold it. You can't really capture it. You can't really touch it. But you don't doubt its existence. You know it's there. You can feel it. and You can see its effects. You can see its influence and power all around you. I mean, how many of you guys have ever been almost knocked over by A gust of wind. Anybody ever been knocked over by a heavy wind almost? Yeah, we've all been there. Maybe you just felt a cool, gentle breeze one evening or one afternoon. None of us doubt the wind's existence. We can feel it. We know it's there. We see its power. We see its effects. But we really can't hold it, touch it, capture it. So if the spirit looks like the wind, why does God use this illustration? Because I think this is used so that we can know how to relate to it. We can't touch it, we can't hold it, but we can let it empower us. Kind of like a sailboat. See, in a sailboat, if you position yourselves just right, if you raise yourselves and position it just right, the wind can drive you where you need to go. It can empower you, it can propel you where you can't go on your own. And I believe that's how we are to relate to God's spirit. We're supposed to catch the wind in order to allow for God to drive our lives, to motivate us, to inspire us, to propel us where we need to go. In other words, we need to go where God goes. We need to move as he moves. We need to say what he says and do what he wants us to do. In other words, how do we relate to his spirit? We need to catch the wind. We need to catch the wind and move as God moves so that we are in sync, in step with him. And we see this theme all throughout scripture, but one place where it is clearly stated is in Galatians. Look at what Paul writes to the church at Galatia. He says, since we live by the spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. In other words, since we claim to live by the spirit, and we all do as followers of Jesus, if you follow Jesus, then you claim to live by the spirit, this is what we need to do. We need to keep in step with the Spirit. We need to move as God moves. What God sees, we need to see. What God would say, we need to say. Where God would go, we need to go. We need to keep in step with God's Spirit. So when I say catch the wind, this is what I'm talking about so that I'm not misunderstood. We trust God to empower our mission and move us where He wants us to go so that His Spirit propels and directs the journey of our lives. And you might even say so that his spirit directs and powers, propels the journey of our church, the life of our church. Now, this is kind of risky because when you catch the wind, the wind can be a little bit unpredictable at times. It can change unexpectedly. Sometimes it moves really quick. Sometimes it slows you down, right? And so if you're going to follow God completely and say, God, wherever you want to take me, that's where I want to go, that requires some risk. Because he may cause you to pivot at the last second. He may cause you to change what you've always believed in your mind. You may have to go somewhere where you never thought you would go. When you catch the wind and you go where God goes, it can be a little risky and even scary at times. But that's how the wind operates. You know, it has been said that a sailboat is safest in the harbor. But we all know that sailboats weren't made to sit in the harbor They were made to sail, and the same is true for us. It's easier, it's safer just to come to church and sit in a pew and then go home and live as you want to live. It's easier just to sit back and talk about sailing and watch other people sail, but never actually do it yourself. But you weren't created to sit in a pew. You weren't created just to watch other people serve. You weren't created to sit in the harbor. You were created to catch the wind and go on the journey of a lifetime with our God. And I believe that when we understand where God wants us to go as a church and we put the full force of the church behind it, God will empower us in a way like he never has before. And we see that this is what God has done throughout history And it's definitely what God did in the earliest days of the church. That's the the example that we see in the book of Acts when the church began in its earliest days. And if there's a word that I could use to describe the early church, it would be this word. It would be the word unstoppable. Because in spite of persecution and pressure and hardship and intimidation, you name it, the early church continued to grow and prosper in its first decades of existence. In fact, the followers of Jesus started with like 120 people meeting in the city of Jerusalem after the resurrection. And then it grew to over 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost when the church actually began. And then soon their number grew to over 5,000 a few days later. And then within the next few decades, the church expands and grows. And it grows from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. So much so that within 30 years of the church's birth, 30 years of the church's start, Paul is able to write to the Colossians, look at what he says, all over the world the gospel is bearing fruit and growing. Within 30 years of the church's start, Paul is able to say the church is growing, the gospel is spreading all over the world just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace and all of its truth That's why the Roman government was so intimidated by the church, because it spread like wildfire. It was growing everywhere, and they couldn't stop it. They tried to attack it. They tried to hold the church back, and they couldn't do it. The church just continued to grow. And here's the thing. The church never fought a physical battle in those early days, never took up arms, never never led a political revolution or anything like that, and yet, they literally took over the hearts of the Roman Empire. How crazy is that? The church was unstoppable. And I believe that just as the church was unstoppable in the book of Acts in its earliest days, I believe it can still be unstoppable today because God's spirit hasn't retired. God's spirit isn't on vacation God's spirit hasn't gone to a galaxy far, far away. God is still moving and is present on the earth. And I believe the winds are still blowing. They're blowing maybe like they never have before. And what's our challenge today, church? we got to catch the wind. we got to let God empower us and move us where he wants us to go. So in this series, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at the early church in the book of Acts And we're going to see how they caught the wind and follow their example so that God can empower us today as well. And today we're going to be in the first couple chapters of the book of Acts when the early followers of Jesus first caught the wind, you might say, soon after the resurrection of Jesus. So basically what's going on, some context here, is Jesus rose from the dead, he's alive, he defeated the grave, walked out of the tomb, and for several days beyond that, weeks after that, Jesus will meet with his disciples and he will teach them and he will. Struck them and tried to inform them about who he really is and why he came and his mission, but they're still not getting it. They're still not wrapping their minds around everything that Jesus is talking about. And so, on one of these occasions, when Jesus is meeting with his disciples after the resurrection, his disciples ask this question: "Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel?" Now what are they basically saying? They still have in their minds that the Messiah was going to come to establish a physical earthly kingdom, a kingdom where the Messiah would literally sit on a physical throne and he would rule over all nations. He would take over all nations so that the Jewish people would be the world's superpower. That's what they had in mind. And so they asked, hey, are you going to do that now? I mean, we're waiting on it. Come on, you now defeated, you know, death and all that. So you're all powerful. Let's do this thing. And I love how Jesus responds, he says, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. In other words, don't worry about the details. God's got a plan, he's gonna carry it out. Don't worry about the details, but I'll give you a little preview of what my kingdom's gonna look like, what it's gonna do, but you will receive power When the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, it's not gonna be what you think. It's not gonna be me leading some physical revolution and we're gonna take on the Roman Caesar and we're gonna defeat this government system or something like that. No, instead, it's gonna be you guys going out and testifying about me, starting here in Jerusalem, then going to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, and by testifying about me, about sharing the good news that I have brought to you, the joy of heaven will invade the sadness of earth. Lives will be changed. Hearts will be transformed. And the reason why you're going to be able to change hearts is not because you have man's weaponry or man's influence or power. It's because the Holy Spirit is going to be with you and he's gonna be driving you, he's gonna be driving your mission. And so Jesus explains all this to them and he says, just wait. Just wait on my spirit to come. He's going to come, and when he does, you're going to get what's going on. So that's what they do. They wait for a little while, and the day of Pentecost comes about. The day of Pentecost was a Jewish celebration where the Jewish people celebrated God giving his Old Testament law, and so tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Jewish people from all over the world, from all different countries and nations and tribes were gathered in the city of Jerusalem for this feast. In fact, most biblical scholars believe more people were present for the celebration of Pentecost and they were for the Passover because the weather was better at this time. So tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Jews from all over the world have gathered in the city of Jerusalem for this great celebration. And on the day of Pentecost, the disciples are all together in one place. And let's read and see what happens. It says when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent what? Wind came from heaven. And filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. That Greek word is just languages. Began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. So what's going on? The Spirit descends on these early disciples and what are they able to do? They're able to testify about Jesus just as Jesus promised, but not in a normal way, in a unique way. They're able to speak about Jesus in such a way that everybody in Jerusalem is able to hear them speaking in their own native tongue in their own language. Remember there are Jews from all over the globe who speak all different languages present in the city of Jerusalem. And when the disciples go out to tell them about Jesus, they're able to speak. And as they speak, everybody hears them in their own language. Everybody hears them in their own tongue. And this fascinated the people who were listening. In fact, look at what the scripture goes on to say. It says, amazed and perplexed, they, speaking of the people who were gathered for this festival in Jerusalem, they asked one another, What does this mean? In other words, they're shocked by this, but they realize there's a deeper meaning here. Just like every miracle that Jesus ever performed. Yes, it was to help the individual that he actually did the miracle for, but there was always a deeper truth it was leading to. Jesus always used the miracle to teach people a deeper truth, and that's what's going on here. Yes, they're speaking in such a way that everybody can hear them in their own native tongue, but there's something more happening. I once heard a professor say, what a professor of mine say that the miracle of speaking in different languages here, that it was on the disciples, but wasn't for them. It was for everyone else to understand what was taking place. See, the people say, What does this mean? What's the deeper meaning here? And the deeper meaning is. The gospel is for all people. See, there is a Jewish belief in this day and age that one day when you died and you went to heaven, everybody would speak Hebrew, that Hebrew would be the native tongue of heaven because they believed you had to be a Jew first before you could be a child of God, before you could enter into heaven, basically. And so you had to be a Jew first. And what's going on here? God is breaking all those false beliefs apart. And he is saying... My good news, the good news of my son, it is for everyone. Every tribe, every people group, every nation under heaven, it is for all people. That's the deeper meaning here. And what's interesting is, even though some people are saying, what does this mean? This has got to mean something. God's at work here. There's got to be a deeper meaning here. Some people, they just doubted that it was of God. It says, some ask, what does this mean? But some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. In other words, they're drunk. Now, in my experience around drunk people, normally they don't start talking in languages that they didn't know already. You know, that just isn't a typical experience of mine. Maybe you've had a different experience, I don't know. But that's not typical, but what are they doing here? They're just trying to question God's activity. And any time that you catch the wind, Anytime you follow God where he wants to take you, and you take a risk, or you step outside of your comfort zone, it always makes other people feel uncomfortable, and they start to question you and criticize you and dismiss you. Anytime that God actively works in our lives, it'll make some people feel really, really uncomfortable, and they'll make fun of you, and they'll call you a fanatic, and they'll question you and criticize you, and they'll be real negative happens all the time it reminds me of a church sign that somebody once uh, pointed out to me and it said this some people should use glue stick instead of chapstick you know what i'm talking about i mean some people just need to zip it right they need to glue their mouth shut because they're just always negative negative. and we know these people we know there are people out there just always negative always questioning what god is doing but we can't let those individuals stop us and the disciples They don't let them stop them either. Read on and see what happens in verse 15 of chapter 2. It says, these men are not drunk. This is Peter speaking. They're not drunk, as you suppose. It's only 9 in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on what? All people, everyone, all nations, all people groups, all tribes, all people. What the disciples here are explaining is, this has been God's plan all along. What you're seeing here is a fulfillment of prophecy. What you're seeing here is God's plan unfolding. We didn't get it. We thought he was going to set up an earthly kingdom. We thought he was going to set on a physical throne. We thought he was going to fight a battle against the Roman Caesar. That's what we thought, but now we get it. This is what God intended, that the message of his son, the message of his self-sacrificial love, would change the hearts, the minds of his creation. So Peter and the other disciples take this moment then to explain to those who would listen on that day who Jesus really is. They explain that he's the Messiah. They explain that he's Lord. They explain what he came to accomplish and how he defeated death on the cross, rose from the dead on the third day. They explain all that. And then we see the summary of Peter's message here in verse 36 when he says, therefore let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. There were probably people in the city of Jerusalem that day who actually shouted crucify him when Jesus was put on the cross. And those who didn't physically shout it, they crucified him with their sin just like we did, right? Peter says, God has made this Jesus whom you cruci- crucified both Lord and Christ, meaning he is Lord, he is overall. he is sovereign, he is reigning over the cosmos. You think that the emperor is reigning? The emperor of Rome, the Caesar is reigning? Not really. Jesus is reigning on high. He is the cosmic leader of all, but not only that, he's also the Christ. He's the Messiah, meaning he's the one who can restore you back to God because that's what everybody really wants. Deep within the heart, the soul of every human being, I believe, is a longing for the restored presence of God. And you can have all the boats and toys and stuff that this world has to offer, but it's not going to eternally satisfy you. The only thing that will satisfy you for all eternity is having a restored relationship with the God who created you, because you were created to do life with him. And Jesus, as the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ, is the only one who can bring us back to God. And that's what God's plan is all about, so that we could walk away from this mundane, cookie-cutter life that's been passed down to us, and we could actually live with purpose purpose and meaning because God is the one who is directing our lives, living in us and working through us. We can have him and we can live in this healthy relationship with him. You see, God's plan, God's plan was to restore everything, is to restore everything, his entire created order because his entire created order has been cursed by sin. But so here's God's plan. Eventually, he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth, the home of righteousness, the Bible says, But before he can create a new heavens and new earth, a place for righteousness to dwell, he's got to have a people who are worthy to live there. And that's what's happening on Pentecost. That's what's been happening for the past 2,000 years. God is now redeeming a people who will be worthy to live in his redeemed creation, in his new home, where he is going to dwell with them. Pentecost, the start of the church, was the beginning of phase one of God's plan to restore all things, to eliminate the curse. And one day... We will live in a home with him where there is no more sin, sickness, heartache, pain, suffering, you name it, because the curse will be completely gone from all existence. We're phase one of that plan. And Peter says to the people on that day, you can now be restored to God through Jesus. And so as the people were listening to this message, they were convicted. Look at what it says. It says when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, not just those who are listening here today, but even us 2,000 years later, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So what does Peter say to do after the people are convicted, cut to the heart, the Bible says, pricked in their hearts? Peter says, repent. In other words, turn around. If you go on to that next slide, look at what he says here. He says, repent and be baptized. Repent. Make a U-turn. Change direction and be baptized. In other words, surrender your life fully and completely to God. Have you ever wondered why when we baptize somebody, why we make the motion or the symbolism of Dying like a grave and coming back up? Because that's what you do in baptism. You die to your old self and you come back up a new person. It is rare that I watch a baptism, especially when I know the person's story, that I don't get emotional because I know how broken that person is. I know how empty they are. I know what they're lacking. And I see that broken, dead self die and come to life again. It's an awesome, incredible, outside-of-this-world moment when that happens. Peter says, you want to know what to do? Repent. Turn around. Change direction. Follow Jesus. Be baptized. Surrender yourself to him. And you know what's going to happen when you do? It says, you will receive the forgiveness of sins, meaning you will be made clean before God. In other words, yes, you're still technically a sinner, but a transaction takes place in the mind of God, and God no longer sees your sin. Now he sees his son instead. You are just as righteous as Jesus is in his eyes. And then he goes on to make this incredible statement. Not only will you receive the forgiveness of your sins, but you will also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, God's Spirit will take up residence in your life. God's Spirit will live within you. God's not going to live in a temple anymore made by man's hands. No, God's going to live in you. You're going to be the temple of the living God. God's Spirit is going to dwell within you. How cool is that? And the people on that day, at least 3,000 of them, Said, we want that. Look at what it says. Those who accepted his message, Peter's message, were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. How cool would that have been? To have seen 3,000 people in one day baptized, how awesome of a sight would that have been to see. That would have been just so cool. I don't know how they did it. I don't know if they lined everybody up in order and just baptized one after another. I don't know how it worked exactly. I don't know if everybody got a T-shirt when they were baptized that day. That's what we do around here. You know, if you get baptized here, we give you one of these T-shirts to wear and you get to keep. That says made new. and On the bottom of it said first church. They could have used this shirt because they were the first church, literally. I mean, they could have used this shirt, you know. But I don't know if they gave them T-shirts. Probably not what a cool sight but here's the thing in the past I've been tempted to read passages like this and ooh and awe about what God did back then say man that was really cool that was really awesome but this series isn't about oohing and aweing about what God did back then this series is a reminder that God hasn't retired <laughs> this series is a reminder that God is still moving That God still wants to change people's lives and hearts today, just as he did back then. We believe here at First Church that the wind is blowing like never before. And if we'll catch it, God will empower this church. He will empower us like he never has before. But whether or not that happens is our choice. Because we often talk about the 3,000 people who were baptized on the day. And how cool would that have been to have seen all those people baptized at one time? Remember what I said, there were tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of people who were present there that day in Jerusalem. What about the people who didn't respond? What about the people who didn't accept Jesus that day? What about the people who just went on back to their own cookie-cutter lives that they had been living? Maybe they didn't respond that day because of fear, because of pride, uncertainty, Maybe they didn't respond that day because of lack of urgency or selfishness or they thought somebody else needed it but not them. I don't know. But Whatever the reason, they just settled for the life they had been living, the life that this world offered them rather than this new life that Jesus was offering them with God. I came across an interview the other day that Brad Pitt, you know, the movie TV star Brad Pitt did um, with Rolling Stone And in this interview, he was talking about how even though he has all this money and fame and stuff, he still feels empty. His soul feels empty, and he sees this in a lot of people. And listen to this quote. Listen to what Brad Pitt says. We are heading for a dead end, a numbing of the soul, a complete atrophy of the spiritual being. Hey, man, I don't have the answers yet. The emphasis now is on success and personal gain. I'm sitting in it, and I'm telling you that's not it. I'm the guy who's got everything. I know. But I'm telling you, once you get everything, then you're just left with yourself. I've said it before and I'll say it again. It doesn't help you sleep any better and you don't wake up any better because of it. Now, no one's going to want to hear that. I understand. I'm sorry. I'm the guy who's got to say it. But I'm telling you. In other words, he's saying we're in the process of just wasting our souls. Getting all this stuff In the end, you're just left with yourself, and you still feel very empty. Brad Pitt here is saying, there's got to be more. And he says, I don't have all the answers. And he may not, but Jesus does. Jesus is the answer. He's what our souls are longing for. Everything else around us is a childish charade in the mind of God. All the stuff and toys of this world, it's a mirage that will never satisfy. It's a house of cards that sooner rather than later will come crashing down. I believe there's a voice crying out deep within all of us that says there has to be more. And the truth is, there is, it is Jesus. Jesus is the source, the meaning, and the purpose of life. And when you do life with him, when you catch the wind, when you go where he wants you to go, you will live like you have never lived before. The question is, are you willing to get out of the harbor? My son, Alex, outgrew his little kid, little boy bike the other day. We got him a new bike that didn't have training wheels on it, and he loves it. As soon as we got it, he wanted to ride it all the time. But what if we'd have bought him that bike and put it in our garage, brand new red bike, paid way too much money for it. When Allison told me how much she paid for it, I thought, you did what? I mean, he could just walk. I mean, he doesn't need a bike. But anyway, no, I'm kidding. But. What if he got this new bike and it just sat in our garage? And we passed by it, and Alex said, Oh, I love my bike, but he never got on it. It's a cool bike, but never got on it. Little boys don't do that, do they? Not typically. Man, he wants to be on that bike all the time. We'll be in the middle of eating dinner. Be like, can I go ride my bike? we got to eat first. We'll come home. We'll drive in the garage. Hey, can I get on my bike? He wants to ride that bike. And the other day, he was riding up and down our street. I told him, don't go past three mailboxes. He went down to like 10 mailboxes. You know, he just kept going. He loves it. And after he was done riding his bike that evening, he looked at me. He said, hey, daddy, when am I going to learn to drive? And I'm like, slow down just a little bit, buddy. You're not quite there yet. Bikes weren't meant to sit in a garage. Boats weren't meant to sit in a harbor. You weren't meant to sit in a pew or on your couch. We were meant to catch the wind and sail with our God and go where he wants us to go. My question is, are you willing to say yes to him today? I want to be a church like the first church that caught the wind and changed the world because of it. So as we end today, I'm going to end with prayer like I always do. But I'm going to do a little different. I'm going to do it just a little bit different. I'm going to ask you guys to stand. So if you just go ahead and stand with me in this moment as we dismiss in prayer. And at the end of my prayer, I'm going to say, and all God's people said, and typically when a preacher does that, people respond, amen, don't do that today. Instead, when I say, and all God's people said at the end of this prayer, I want you guys to just say three words, do it again. If you're with me and you want the Spirit to move in this church like he did 2,000 years ago, if you're with me, if you want to catch the wind, then when I say and all God's people said, just say out loud together. Do it again. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for today and this inspiration that we've received. This example we've received from the Book of Acts. May we be a church like those early Christians who are willing to catch the wind and go where you want us to go. And so, Father, I pray. I pray that you send a windfall on this church and the lives of these people like we have never seen before. And in so doing, the world will dramatically see who you are and lives will be changed because of it. So, Father, just as you worked in your church 2,000 years ago, Father, we pray today and all God's people said, do it again. In Jesus' name, amen.